Good morning, everybody. The hardest part of the day is over. We got this goofy machine working, I think. Well, high technology for technically challenged people. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Good to see everyone. Winter coats are out. Look at you. Wow, wow, wow. It's like the world coming to an end. In New York, we call this a heat wave. Wow. Man, oh man, oh man. Nice to see everybody. Almost everybody. Let's be on. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's not good when they talk back at you. <coughs> Did you go to the church service already? Yes, sir. So you went. To, what hour is this? This. So you went at eight. Yes, sir. Wow, you got up early. Holy moly, that's really something. Was Brother John up? He was? Yeah. Well, you know, when you get to be older, you don't sleep at night. And so, I'm persnickety. I have no idea what that means, but I've been dying to say the word persnickety. He says that? That's an O'Reilly word? I shall never use it again. <laughs> no, he, he says, if you want to opine. Doesn't he say that? Opine? Yeah. I don't know what that means. Speaks in tongues. Is that what Charles does? Oh, no comment. <laughs> Folks, do you know what Psalm we're on? Psalm 6. Way to go. Psalm 6. Would you turn there? And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Psalm 6. Really wonderful. You'll see the same introductory words that we ran into last week. See, it says, for the choir director, again be reminded, these marvelous lyrics, that's what they were, were put to music. And so to help the director of choir and musicianship, there's a few musical notations. Here's one with stringed instruments. So the words penned here by David uh, were to be put to strings. And then it says, upon an eight-string lyre. Does your Bible have, have that? L-Y-R-E, something like that? Eight-string lyre? We're a little uncertain about what's going on there. It literally is translated an instrument of the eighth key. An instrument of the eighth key. I have no idea what that means. Um, some people say, you see, it kind of comes from the word from which we get our word octave or octave. Are there musical people here? What's an octave? Anybody know? Uh, Deb, what is it? Ah, so Deb is saying uh, it's the way the musical notation is laid out. It repeats every eighth note. Good, thank you. So that'll change your life. <laughs> but I mean, there it is, an eight-string lyre. Now, some people say, scholars, that from this, um, you'll forgive me for not going into 
too much more detail because it isn't necessary. But from this is the word base as opposed to treble. Why? Well, you're going to see as you read what David wrote that it isn't a happy poem. Um, it's, uh, it's an expression of pain. And so perhaps it was thought that uh, from a musical point of view, it would be better to let the accompany be, accompaniment not be celebratory as much as somber. So that's kind of, I think, what's happening, and you, you'll see the context. So here's what David writes now, verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. So I ask you a question. David was connected by faith to God. Would his God, would your God, even do something like that which David implies. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your wrath. Would God do that? You are correct. Of course He would do that. Would you as a loving parent? Of course you would. In fact, chastisement sometimes is the very indicator of parental love. Doesn't the Bible say things like the dad who refrains from disciplining his child with a rod hates his child? Right. Strong language. God is a father who loves his kids. That's why it says, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So what the Heavenly Father is about is that we walk in His direction and that if we get off, we're brought back. And He has at least two means at His disposal by which He affects uh, the direction of our lives. And one is the Word of God. But the second is the rod of God. If one of God's kids is unresponsive to his word, then he lovingly will apply his rod. And that's what we're reading about here. It is implied that David is going to associate some of his present difficulties with his own misbehavior. It is implied in the context of the psalm, as you will see, that what we're reading about is some transgression having been committed by David and which brought upon him severe and very painful consequences. He makes his appeal to sovereign God, therefore, to remove his chastisement from him. What are the circumstances? What is the transgression committed by David and associated with this psalm? We don't know. We surely do know about his episode and involvement, for instance, with Bathsheba, and we know of his plot to have her husband removed. Whether those historical events are the context of this psalm is debatable. We do not know, so we can't make the scriptures say more than they do. David knew. David knew that he went astray for whatever reason. And now he is feeling 
the heavy chastisement of God. And so, this is called a penitential psalm. It's the first in the collection of psalms called a penitential psalm. We're going to see others. And a penitential psalm is when one does penance. When one expresses sorrow for his or her misdeeds and a very sincere desire to turn away from them and back to holy God. That's repentance. That is penance. Hence, we get the word penitential psalm. That's what this is about here. Notice the basis of David's appeal in verse 2. Be gracious to me, O God. Notice he doesn't say, uh, Respond to me according to my goodness, says. Instead he says, Be gracious to me. So the appeal for relief is not made on the basis of David's character. It's made on the basis of God's. So learn something, as I want to, from this penitential psalm. If you want God's ear, uh, don't uh, display your uh, righteousness and goodnesses. It falls short. If you want God's ear, cry to help. Uh, cry to Him to help you on the basis of His graciousness. You know, that kind of gets God's ear. It's no different uh, uh, than when a mo mother in a crowded room can pick out and respond to her baby's cry. If you want your father's attention, cry for help, but don't justify, don't persuade him uh, to intervene on your behalf because of any good thing in you. Big mistake. So he makes his appeal on the basis of God's character. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for look what he says, I'm pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. It's a metaphor for his physical condition. His bones, the very structure of his body, his anatomy, that which is sustaining his very house. His body are shaking. That's the Hebrew word behind our word for dismayed. He's shaking. So, he is experiencing some physical, some anatomical, some medical ramifications for his sin. Now, be very careful. I'm not saying all medical difficulties are due to direct personal sin. Be careful. Would you go to someone with a cancer and say to them, have you yet identified the sin in your life which is behind it? Of course, first sin, Genesis 3, messed up everything. I understand that. So the first cause, you might say, of the mess we've gotten ourselves in is, yes, the fall from uh, uh, God's uh, situation which He gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But you want to be very careful about being so simplistic that you think every malady which confronts us is due to our sin. There is that movement, which is why I bring this up. But it's not accurate. In this case... David, not me, 
is drawing a very direct connection between his wrongdoing and how he's feeling. Sometimes that's the case. Folks, the most miserable person on earth is a believer in rebellion against God. Not an unbeliever. They're used to sin. They like sin. They're not convicted by sin. They're not possessed by the Holy Spirit who makes them uncomfortable with sin. They're quite at home with it. Therefore, the most miserable person is not an unsaved person. It's a saved person not acting like it. And sometimes the misdeed unrepented of could lead to sleeplessness and poor appetite and all kinds of physical stuff going wrong for which there isn't actually a physical cause, an etiology. A cause. The cause is a soul problem. I didn't say that's true of all physical illness. Please don't hear me do that. We have to not be so simplistic. I'm saying in this case it is because David says so. So then he goes on uh, and uh, says in verse 3, and my soul is greatly dismayed. Do you know why God allows us even to not feel well physically? Sometimes to move us to repent if sin is behind it. See, that too is the activity of a loving God. Remember, His Word, the Word of God, is to direct our paths, but so too is the rod of God. And so sometimes when you're feeling miserable, you do a little diagnostic work and find out, oh, Lord, I am rebelling against you. I'm not living your way and things are not going well with me. So it moves you to repentance. So uh, David says his soul is greatly dismayed. So whatever is going on with him affected him not just physically, but also in his soul. That's the emotional, psychological being. So he is saying, um, you cannot separate one from the other. Uh, I've sinned and it is affecting me physically and psychologically. Now you also get folks today who will say, all emotional difficulties are due to your direct sin. So the goal of a counselor is to simply help you identify and turn from your sin and then you won't be, for instance, depressed anymore. And I think that's true. In certain cases, but not in others. Would you go to somebody who's depressed over the loss of a loved one? And would you tell them, let me help you identify your sin so that you can cease to be depressed? Would you say to someone struggling with a chemical imbalance in their brain, causing them to have emotional highs and lows, would you say to them, Get over your sin and you'll be fine. When the brain is an organ, just like the heart and other things, and it could get out of balance as well. So don't be a simplistic Christian who reduces everything to direct human sin. It's not true. And if you do that, on top of a person's struggle, you will impose a load of guilt and shame. That's right. That is not biblical counseling. Biblical counseling takes into effect the multifaceted makeup of the human being, part of which is surely our proclivity to sin, and the other part is 
our physiology and chemical makeup and our endocrine system and all the rest. Do you know if you have hypoglycemia, you could be depressed? Would you spend time convicting that person of sin when in fact he needs to see a medical doctor and probably correct his diet? So I'm just saying don't be simplistic. In this psalm, David did diagnostic work and he knew it was his misbehavior that was causing him problems in this particular psalm. Notice again verse 3, My soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? So I ask you, how long what? He doesn't complete his thought, does he? (laughs) You know why? He's distressed. Have you ever been... Don't raise your hand, but you can wiggle your toes. Uh, Only the ants will know. Um... Have you ever been so distressed that you, you're crying out of your pain to God and you're not even coherent in expressing yourself? You can't even complete your... Of course, he's asking how long will this go on before God provides relief, but he doesn't get into all How long? He, just, he can't even finish his thought. But those two words, how long, are fairly typical of humanity, aren't they? When we hurt, those are the things that typically come out. How long? Well, I have the answer. Um, In God's time. And boy, do we not like that answer when we're in pain. Because we want the time frame to be immediate deliverance from it. In most cases, that doesn't happen. So the time is to be determined by the Father, and boy, do we not like that, but too bad. That's the way it are. Now the other question we ask when we're in pain, not just how long, what's the other one everyone asks? Why? (laughs) As if an infinite deity who has no beginning nor end, as if, if he simply explained to us what he's up to, We'd say, okay, now we're cool. Everything's cool. Let me just go. As if an explanation (laughs) of what God is up to would relieve all of our pain. That's not true. Uh, I'll tell you what helps. Not so much an explanation, but a revelation of his trustworthiness again. Do you give your little children an explanation for everything you require of them? I hope not. You try to be reducing yourself to their intellect. They're just little kids. They don't know why you told them not to eat candy bars before dinner. You just tell them that. And when they say why, the best answer is because I'm your parent, I love you, and I said so. Why don't you give them more? Because they can't receive it. They don't know principles of nutrition. They just know you're keeping them from something that tastes good. So what do you expect of them? You expect that they will trust you, the who, even without the why answer. And that's how God is training us. He's the who, even though we don't understand the what and the why. uh, The Father is saying, I'm giving you enough reason over time to trust me even without an explanation, even without an answer. That's the way it is. So David cries out, and look what he says, verse 4. 
Return, O Lord! You know why he said that? Because he was overwhelmed by a sense of separation from God. And that's what sin does. Did he forfeit God's favor or grace? No! He forfeited the quality of fellowship that simply cannot persist when two parties are at odds with one another. Look, if uh, two of you here are at odds with one another, for instance, when you get offended by what uh, Brother Chuck says, (laughs) let me just give it a realistic example. You know, because it'll happen. Not when I, but when brother... (laughs) You're still connected. We're in the family of God and so on, but you're conversation is uh, compromised until there's reconciliation. So it's not possible if you are redeemed to get unredeemed. It isn't possible if you understand the nature of redemption, which is God's doing from beginning to end. It's not possible to start out at being a redeemed one, saved that is to say, and then somehow you don't behave up to par and God withdraws it from you because you were a slob to begin with. Amen. <laughs> but while we were yet sinners, yes. Christ died for us. I mean, your virtue didn't obtain salvation and your vice cannot forfeit it. It's all a function of the grace of the Savior, don't you see? So David didn't forfeit his connection to God. He forfeited his communion with God. That's why he cries out, Return to me! It's not as if God went away. It's that David went astray. Don't you see it? God doesn't change his position. We do. So David in keeping with repentance, cries out, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me. Look at this. Because of your loving kindness. And that's how you get God's attention. You remind Him who He is. You don't tell Him who you are. (laughs) You ain't so hot. And neither am I. And even at our best, we we aren't so good. (laughs) And so you don't worry about being at your best or being at your worst because your appeal has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the character of God. So he says, save me because of... Save me because I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Save me because I'm doing the best I can. Save me because I'm going to give more money to the church, I promise. No. Save me because of your loving kindness. And there's the word we ran into last week, chesed. There it is again. It's a special quality of love. It's not erotic love. It isn't romantic love. It isn't love that has anything to do with the loveliness of the object of the love. It has everything to do with the giver of the love who's going to give it unconditionally on the basis of some covenant like unto marriage where we vow in sickness and in health and good times and in bad, I'm still going to love you. It has nothing to do with like. God didn't like David's behavior. Like is so fleeting. It vacillates. Like is, you know, if you do nice things that I approve of, I like you. But chesed, love, means I don't like you. 
I don't like what you do. Your sin is repulsive to me. I am infinitely holy, but we're in covenant together. I established it and you accepted it. And nothing ever will change that. That's chesed, love. And David knew it. And so he just charged into the throne room, approached the throne of grace, and that's what he done got. Grace. He didn't get what he deserved and he didn't ask for what he deserved. Don't ever ask for that. Oh God, give, be just. Oh, say God, be gracious. Thank God His justice had been outpoured already on His incarnate self, on the Son. You don't want His justice. You want His chesed love. So you don't ask Him to give you what you deserve. You ask Him to respond to you on the basis of who He is. So that's what David did. Verse 4. And now he makes another appeal uh, 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 based on something else in verse 5. There's no mention of you in death, he said, in Sheol, who's going to give you thanks? So first David says, would you deliver me on the basis of who you are? Now he says, and if you don't, I can't give you glory. He had a rather undeveloped notion of eternity. He had a notion of eternity. He knew there was something called Sheol after death. It's the place of the death. The New Testament equivalent is Hades. Sheol and Hades are not hell. Sheol and Hades are both the temporary places of the dead. Hell is the permanent uh, place of those who reject the giver of life. So David knew of Sheol. He didn't know about Revelation 21 and 22, this marvelous description of the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem. And if you come on a Wednesday night, by the way, it wouldn't kill you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, heaven one of these days. We'll get to it. But David didn't have this. But he did know about uh, if I die, I go to this place. And it's a place where nobody talks about God. Nobody thanks God. Nobody mentions God. So David actually felt his situation was so desperate he might die. And so he says to God, if in fact I do, uh, there'll be no mention of you in death and who's going to give you thanks in Sheol. So here's the implied deal he's making with God. He's saying, God, here's the deal. If you let me live, if you deliver from this, even though I'm responsible for it, I brought it on myself, but if you deliver me from it, I'll sing your praise. I'll glorify you. Could I tell you something? That's an acceptable deal. Now, it doesn't mean the Father's going to take you up on it. He can do what He wants. But I'll tell you why that's an acceptable deal. You're essentially saying, I don't want you to deliver me as an end in itself. I want you to deliver me if, in fact, me living... Uh, will bring glory to your name. Yes. And that's the way to make your appeal to God. If you, if you just want God to give you good stuff, then you just think He's a divine Santa Claus. Yeah, that's right. You know, you God, give me this, give me... But if you say, oh God, I'm miserable, I'm in agony, I'm sick, I'm not well, I cannot function, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I have no energy... This disease, this whatever it is, is cutting my life short. And oh God, if you were to heal me, if you chose to, I promise you, I'll mention you in life. I'll give thanks to you. I'll attribute my well-being to you. I'll bring glory to your name. Again, it doesn't mean the Father will automatically do it because uh, he may be up to something else. But I'm telling you, that should be the basis of the appeal. Listen, 
just to be healthy as an end in itself means nothing. What's the point of that? You're going to get a glorified body anyway and live forever in heaven. You are going to get entirely healed. What's the purpose of it then? Oh God, if you relieve me of that which has me, I will glorify you. And you could say, God, look, if you want me to be affected by this illness, if you want me to be psychologically troubled, that's okay. I'm still your son and I'm still your daughter. I just think I could do better in telling people about you and thanking you and glorifying you if I was free of these things. And so that's the basis of my appeal. See what David does? Pretty cool deal. So that's what he says. Verse 6, I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. It's metaphorical, but it um, talks about the severity of his calamity. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever cried over something that has so deeply pained you that you can't even stop? You wonder where the tears are even coming from, you think you would have used them all up, drained, uh, you would have thought at this time, dried up literally, of the capacity to cry, but they keep coming. Well, that's essentially what David was saying. It's nighttime. You know how painful the night could be if you're struggling with something. You're alone. There's nobody there. There's nothing to distract you from the pain. And so sometimes you're in bed but wide awake and you're just, well, you're making your bed swim. See the language, David? Here's a guy who won victory over Goliath but cannot win victory in his own strength over the consequences of his own wrongdoing. You see it? My eye has wasted away with grief, says David. Have you ever seen somebody, and maybe they're coming to church, but you look at them and you just know, wow, they've been crying. You look at their eye and you could see the effects. My eye has wasted away with grief. It's become old, premature aging. It's become old because of my adversaries. If you have a soul-ish emotional problem, it could affect you physically in your appearance, and you could, you could show the effects of the wear and tear. Now David here says, all this is happening because of my adversaries. Yeah, but based on what we're seeing here, it looks like he's making a connection between his wrongdoing and his vulnerability to adversaries. And that's why God hates it when we sin. He doesn't hate us. Oh, no. See, when we sin, we are essentially moving ourselves out from God's fold and we're wandering away. And when you wander from the chief shepherd you run into ravenous wolves who want to devour you. And that's why God hates it when one of His kids sin. It's just like you with one of your children, teenager or older, essentially saying, I'm doing it my way, and off they go, and you just know calamity is around the corner. So, But now David has repented, 
And I have to tell you, things have changed in verse 8. There's a kind of, if you will, psychological transition. First he's overwhelmed by it all, and now he's beginning to gain confidence that he has made it right with God. Look, depart from me, all you who do iniquity. Why? For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. He had confidence that he had made it right with God and that God had heard him. And now he can join the battle once again. It no longer was within because he had the peace of God which passes understanding. He made peace with God through confession and repentance and now he could boldly do battle against his enemies and he wanted to be free now of iniquity in those who do it. He knew what it had done to him. By the way, do you know it doesn't impress God if after you sin and confess it and turn from it, you continue to beat yourself up. Do you know you don't get any points with God for doing that? In fact, in your prideful way, you are essentially saying, what Jesus did wasn't enough for me. I have to add to it by crucifying myself. So I will deny myself peace with God until I feel like I have sufficiently pained myself and then I will rejoin the battle. I was in the military a million years ago in another country and a man I met who was a godly man said to me in some context one day, Stuart said he, in the last several years I haven't been out of fellowship with God, he said, for more than 15 minutes. I thought either he's a, a maniac or a liar. But that's because I misunderstood what he said. He didn't say he hadn't sinned. He said when he had sinned and was specifically convicted of it by the Holy Spirit who indwelt him, he immediately called it what it was. He confessed it as sin, took God's forgiveness, turned from it, and was back in right relationship with God. He said, Stuart, don't wait longer to do that. Don't wait till you feel better about yourself. Don't wait, or in, wait until you've done some good deeds which you can use as bargaining power with God. Take God at His word when He said He'll cast all your sin behind His back. And as far as the east is from the west, so has He separated our sin from us. And come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. He said, you see. So that's what David did and that's why you get verse 8. David said, I confessed, I repented. You, uh, God of grace, have heard. Now let's go to work and I'll clean up my act. By the way, repentance is only in part saying you're sorry. But then you have to bring forth behaviors consistent with it. Doesn't the Bible say bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance? That's correct. Sometimes we meet with ladies who sometimes have had serial marriages with the same kind of guy. An irresponsible guy to begin with. Divorce. An irresponsible guy again. One's an alcoholic, one's a philanderer, one's an abuser. 
What's with the lady? Is she a bad person? No. She's a believing person. She's too believing. She confronts the irresponsible man. He says, sometimes in tears, I don't deserve you, but will you give me one more chance? She says, because she's believing, okay. Why is she believing him? He hasn't brought forth any fruit in keeping with his professed repentance. He just said he's sorry. Sure, he's sorry he got caught for crying out loud. So he says, will you trust me? Please trust me. I want you to trust me. She says, okay. Wait a second. He just violated trust. Is trust restored just because the untrustworthy person asks for it? It's restored when the untrustworthy person over time proves himself to be trustworthy. So David didn't just say, oh God, take the heat off me. I'm sorry for wrongdoing. Now David said, I want to rid my whole life of evil and evildoers. That's true repentance. You see it? It's awfully quiet. Amen. Maybe you don't see it because you are the person. I don't know. But it's a blindness just to believe someone's professed repentance. It happens with ministers caught in adultery and then three weeks later they're back in the pulpit. Exactly. Don't you trust me? Don't you forgive me? Heck no, I don't trust you. I hope you wouldn't trust me. I hope you wouldn't crucify me if I... Nobody falls into sin. If I chose to sin. That's, that's the way it is. I hope you wouldn't trust me. I hope you would remove me immediately from my position and sure, pray for me and help me and all the rest. But don't restore me to the position. No, sir. How could you do? What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time. It doesn't mean you hate the person. It doesn't mean you don't grieve. Things happen when we commit sin. Some of which is irreversible. And just because you say, I'm sorry. Of course you're sorry. Everybody is sorry. God is the most sorry for what has happened. But it happened and now we we have to re- rebuild trust and that may not happen for years if ever right. so so he uh, is confident in verse 8 only two to go look at this and then and then he says in verse 9 the lord has heard my well f- uh, oh excuse me you see the phrase back in verse 8 i skipped it sorry uh, the lord has heard the voice of my weeping isn't that beautiful poetry the voice of my weeping is there a voice in your tears? Yeah. Sometimes when you can't put your pain into words and you're just crying, God could discern the tears, you see? He could hear the voice of your tears. In fact, someone has said your tears are like liquid prayers. Mm, isn't that good? Don't be ashamed to cry before God. So then David says, The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord received my prayer. See the transition? See the confidence? And now verse 10, All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They'll suddenly be ashamed. Now wait a minute. David starts out in great turmoil. He's filled with tremendous uh, pain. He is dismayed. And now he uses the very word with reference to his enemies. Look, verse 2. 
Uh, for my bones are dismayed. Remember he said that? Now at the end of the psalm, he, he says, they, my enemies, will be greatly dismayed. It's the same word. What happened there? You got ten verses. He came before... And this is the beauty of the Psalms. The psalmist is pulling back all the layers of his skin and letting us peer into his heart so we could do likewise. David, in the midst of his sin, realized the effects thereof, cried out to God on the basis of God's goodness and David's desire to live on so as to glorify his name. He knows God hears his prayer and has forgiven him. And now he enters the fray and he knows in the end I'll be okay with God, but evildoers will be filled with dismay. Wow. Let me encourage you to write something like Psalm 6 if you come to be in David's situation. In your own words, write Psalm 6 and take God up for who he is just as David did. David never said, look at me. (laughs) David said, I'm looking to you and I'm drawing on your character. Mine is corrupt and bankrupt. See the difference over here? Now for those, um, once again, who will reduce all of our struggles to direct and personal sin, I hope they never has have a child who has bipolar disorder or um, uh, some mood disorder <laughs> for which they need some other intervention than a sermon. I hope that never person that person never. Could I tell you this? Years ago, I was preaching at a Baptist pastors thing. There were a thousand. <coughs> Baptist pastors, another state, not this state, and this would never happen in Texas. And um, I was to speak on um, counseling, essentially. Christian counseling. And before me was another person, a speaker, who I think, aware of the fact that I was to follow him, berated the so-called Christian counseling movement. For instance, like we have here at our church, where someone understands patterns of human behavior as well as scriptural principles and can assist folks down the road. He just berated the whole movement and all the rest. And I'm supposed to follow this guy. So I did who knows what. And um, three months later, I found out his adult daughter committed suicide. Please don't misunderstand. Nobody rejoices over that. I didn't feel vindicated. I just felt sad that her dad was such a narrow... Under the guise of being so super spiritual, he wouldn't allow for other processes in her life and so her struggles went untreated. Medication could have balanced her out. Does that mean you don't trust God? What? Does it mean you don't trust God when you eat lunch later? Why do you do anything in terms of self-care if that means you distrust God? 
To trust God is to say, I called out to you and you provided a helping person who has a means of intervention that could help me to live on on a higher level and bring glory to your name. So why do I say all that? Because there's a movement in the other direction. And I don't want it to break out in our church, that's all. Because you're going to see a whole bunch of people now uh, otherwise who will stuff their pain because they think it's not acceptable for a Christian to be in pain. And they'll, what's their choice then? You can only come, the only way out is to take your life then, right? No! The, the other way out is Psalm 6. To pour out your heart before God. To cling to Him for blessing. To say, oh God, I need help. Let me live on. That's a better solution than think you can't talk about it. <laughs> Alright, so I'm done. Till the next hour when I rant and rave again. <laughs> Why do I do all this? I speak as someone who struggles with depression. And I thank God for the help I've received without which I couldn't be here. That's why. And I've examined myself. If you can find sin in my life, please point it out. I want to know about it. I don't know of a pattern of unrepented sin. I'm a struggler. <laughs> but thank God I made it to 59. And frankly, I'm going pretty strong. I thank God for the help He provided through human agency. And I don't want anyone here to deny themselves the same help under some crazy teaching that everything about you is sin. Just confess it and then that's it. I have confessed sin and accepted Jesus as my Savior. Of course I'm a sinner. So are you, but sin doesn't... Uh, directly account for all of our particular struggles for crying out loud. Okay, so there, I came out of the closet. <laughs> and Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you know all things about us and, the, and even before time when you saw us just as we are, you determined to have us as your own. This is marvelous. And there's no safer place than to be in your company because you take us just the way we are. We even sing that just as I am. So help us to believe it because it's true. Thank you for your unlimited, undiminished chesed love which persists in spite of us. That's good news. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Hey, pray for me. No, not about what I told you, but that I can turn off the recording. I don't know how to turn this thing off.